1: Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and welcome to The Daily Beast, The New Abnormal. I'm a left-wing pundit and an editor-at-large at The Daily Beast. We're here to have fun, sharp conversations with some of the smartest people in media, politics, and science that help make what's happening in the country and the world clearer our world has been turned upside down. On The New Abnormal, we'll talk about the people who got us into this mess and figure out how to get ourselves out of it.
2: And I'm producer Jesse Kennon. I'm here to make sure things don't go too far off the rails. Today's episode is short, but boy, is it packed with interesting stuff. First, we're going to talk to Congressman Adam Schiff, who of course represents California's 26th district and sits on the January 6th commission. And is, of course, the author of Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could. Then we'll talk to NBC News digital reporter John Allen, who also authored the book, Lucky, How Joe Biden Nearly Lost the Presidency.
1: John Allen!
3: Molly Fair, queen of the podcast.
1: Welcome back to the new abnormal. We are friends, so you will not be mad at me when I give you a very hard time.
3: Is it about how I look on television when I have, like, too much facial hair growth?
1: No. (laughs) You'll always look gorgeous to me. No, I want to talk to you about the media's coverage of Build Back Better and the American Rescue Plan. I have been watching television this morning, cable television, while trying to figure out what's going on. And I think that the mainstream media is being kind of unfair, almost like a little bit hostile.
3: The mainstream media hostile? I don't think anyone would believe you. I don't think anyone would agree. The Biden White House wouldn't agree with you that the mainstream media is hostile. The Trump White House wouldn't agree. No, everybody would agree with you that the mainstream media often sounds hostile.
1: What I want to talk about is when we're recording this right now, Biden has given a speech where he has said, we have the framework. Numerous Democrats have come out and said, we have the framework. I've watched a number of pretty tense interviews with members of the media who have got have tried to get Democrats to say they're not gonna vote for it until they see what's in it. It's not clear if Pelosi's gonna do a vote today. Where are we here?
3: Let's start with the two senators, Manchin and Cinema. What they want right now, which is the same thing as what Democratic leaders in the House and the Senate and President Biden want is for that infrastructure bill to become law. Biden has talked about, or the White House has talked about his you know, Europe trip and how you know, having some of this stuff set for his Europe trip is is a big deal. But the real political driver on this, because there's no actual deadline, the real po- political driver is uh, the Virginia gubernatorial race next Tuesday. And there's a belief that it, it is helpful for moderates to have the infrastructure bill signed, sealed, and delivered. Right. And, Virginia, and specifically yeah. for Terry McAuliffe, who you know, probably defines himself as progressive on some days, but is generally thought of as a, a fairly moderate establishment Democrat. So there's that impetus, right? And certainly for Manchin, and in they want to get the infrastructure bill done whenever they can get it done.
1: There's a lot of feeling in the pundit class that if this gets passed, it will help Terry McAuliffe in Virginia.
3: Right, that's the that's sort of the, the conventional wisdom.
1: Is there anything tangible that people are going on, or just
3: no? It's just a feel. Look, McAuliffe has asked the White House to move on the infrastructure bill. Certainly, his camp believes that it's helpful to him. I think they probably believed it would have been more helpful a month ago than it is now. But uh, you know, no, there's no empirical evidence of that. It's simply what they think. You know, what the people around him think now. If you're mansion in cinema, you want to get this infrastructure bill on. And so when the framework, when the White House comes out and says, there, hey, there's a framework, you are going to say the most positive thing you possibly can about that framework. And so that's what we're seeing, right? Cinema came out and said, look, we made some progress. I look forward to getting this done. That does not mean she has signed off on the Build Back Better bill. But the idea is to try to get progressives comfortable with the idea that uh, they're not going to lose the Build Back Better bill if the infrastructure bill becomes law.
1: Do you think that happened today?
3: I don't think that they bought it. That doesn't mean that they won't vote for the infrastructure bill if it goes to the floor, right? That is to say, like, I don't think they're convinced that, like, Cinnamon and Manchin are going to do what progressives want on a reconciliation bill. That's a different question than, like, how do you vote if the president's infrastructure bill is on the floor? And will they really take it down? And if they do really take it down, um, you know, what does that do for the process, right? The, the There's an argument to be made that, like, some steam needs to come out of the room. And maybe that, you know, maybe a defeated Bill on the floor, even though Nancy Pelosi doesn't want to do that for her legacy and, you know, for a variety of other reasons.
1: You see a world where Nancy Pelosi takes a bill up that doesn't pass? I don't.
3: People say that she won't do that, and there's all this like sort of you know sort of re- revisionist history that she's never brought a bill to the floor that lost. That's just not true. I've watched her bring bills to the floor lose before. But, uh, the biggest example was the um, the financial services bill, basically the bailout package in two thousand eight that came to the floor and failed. Now she wasn't doing it to lose. There wasn't like a a deceptive vote going on there. It wasn't like she brought it with the intention of losing. And I don't think she would bring an infrastructure of the bill to the floor with the attention of losing. That said, it may be difficult to get those 218 votes. And you say, like, the media is asking people, is this enough for you? Part of the reason is so many of them have gone out there on a limb, on a progressives, have gone out there on a limb and said, we're not going to vote for this unless we've read legislative text. right? They don't have legislative text of all these proposals. They are literally dropping tax, like, complicated tax policies into this framework. At the last possible moment.
1: That happens. I mean, that's what happened with Obamacare. I mean, you know, that's how a lot of legislation gets passed. It's like, you know, are we going to crash the economy with the debt ceiling? Are we going to? I mean, I feel like the the hostility that the mainstream media has towards this, like, I mean, isn't that how it often goes?
3: Yes, the mainstream media's job is to point out the difference between what the, uh, politicians with an agenda are saying and what the truth is so they will always sound less bullish about whatever than a politician who's trying to get the thing passed sounds right like the journalists don't if they're doing their job right they don't have a rooting interest except to try to show the, the difference between what's being said and what the reality is
1: right but i do think you can see how biden he knows how to do legislation. He was in the Senate for a million years. like, And part of it is kind of bullying people to go along with things.
3: Yes, but right now he needs to be bullying the progressives. And that's basically what he's doing, right? Like, this is the moment at which the White House decided to roll, try to roll the progressives.
1: And the question is, does it work?
3: Right. And, you know, we live in, a, in an era in which, um, you know, like 30 or 40 years ago, uh, a president could legitimately say to a member of Congress, if you don't go along, you will not have my support in your next election. You will not have the support of the party in the next election. Nobody cares about that anymore, right? Like, Or at least it's a much smaller factor in their thinking. So like the the tools that the White House has to um, lobby and bully and cajole and whatever, like they have disappeared. Earmarks are gone. I mean, all of these tools that they used to have are gone. And so... Um, it's, you really have to, it really either has to be that somebody agrees with you on the policy or that your personal relationship with them is strong enough that they're willing to take some hits for you. But if you're one of the progressive leaders right now, and you agree to go forward on this infrastructure bill and some of your other progressive leaders don't, they will then be able to point at you and be like, that, that person's the trader, right? Like there's this whole incentive structure that is to be the most extreme, the most strident, whatever. I think the vast majority of the Democrats in both the House and the Senate would vote for pretty much anything that falls between $1.5 trillion and $3.5 trillion and has some of the policies that have been discussed, right? Like, they just want to get these things done, and it is Manchin and Sinema in the Senate, to some extent Bernie Sanders in the Senate, and the House progressives and a handful of House moderates in the House that are frustrating the desires of the White House and also Uh, the vast majority of Democrats on Capitol Hill and the vast majority of Democrats in the country.
1: So what do you think happens now?
3: We'll have to see, you know, because we're talking about this before the infrastructure bill comes to the House floor. We'll have to see. But one of the things that's very instructive about the scramble to get this framework done this week is how far away they are from actually nailing down the details that can get uh, both moderates and conservatives on board for the reconciliation bill. And there's going to be an effort to relitigate it, right? Like, no matter what happens with infrastructure, there are going to be people that say, look, there needs to be paid family and medical leave in this bill, and it's been dropped by the wayside. Or, you know, it's amazing that, you know, vision and dental under Medicare uh, were dropped from this, right? The thing that Bernie Sanders cares the most about. So I think there's a real distance between a framework and legislative language that people will vote for. And so no matter what happens with the infrastructure bill, they still have a lot of work to do on the reconciliation bill.
1: Right. I know this is partisan, but I'm partisan. I'm on the opinion side. So, so sue me, Um, but don't actually sue me. I listened to the Biden speech and like, it is amazing to me that Republicans are going to vote against all of these things that are seemingly very good for their constituents.
3: Yeah, welcome to America in the 21st century.
1: Right? I mean, like high-speed trains, climate stuff. I mean, who doesn't want that?
3: Well, some of them are going to—I think some of them are likely to vote for the infrastructure bill. But if Pelosi brings it to the floor and it's a close vote, you could see that handful of Republicans hold back their votes to— until the Democrats can get two hundred eighteen on their own, but as far as the reconciliation bill goes, all of the Republicans are against it. They're against the tax increases. They can justify it through that. They're uh, against the overall size of the spending. They're you know they can justify it through that. So uh, you know they feel comfortable politically that they can say, "Look, I'd love to expand the child tax credit, but I'm not going to do it at a cost of you know one point seven five trillion over ten years, or I'm not going to do it." Uh, with increased taxes that are going to make, you know, businesses less competitive.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Thank you so much. This was great. Thanks, John Allen.
2: Hey folks, if you haven't heard every single week, we do a special bonus episode for beast inside the daily beast membership program.
1: Sometimes we interview
2: senators like Cory Booker or the folks who explain what's happening behind the scenes in media like Jim Acosta or Soledad O'Brien. Sometimes we just have fun and talk to our favorite comedians and actors like Busy Phillips or Billy Eichner. And sometimes we just have friends around to analyze what's happening in the news. You can get all of our episodes in your favorite podcast app of choice by becoming a Beast Inside member, where you'll support The Beast's fearless journalism, as well as getting full access to podcasts and articles. To become a member, head to newabnormal.thedailybeast.com. That's
4: newabnormal.thedailybeast.com.
0: Dot com slash the new abnormal
2: congressman adam schiff represents california's 26th district and is the author of midnight in washington how we almost lost our democracy and still could
1: welcome to the new abnormal adam schiff great to be with you i have a lot of questions for you the first is jesse and i have become increasingly concerned about democracy <laughs> and, I, I mean, we were always concerned about democracy, but I don't know if you know this, but last night...
2: Now it's like a teenager who seems like they're going to crash the car and uh, has a bottle of their head at all times.
1: <laughs> right. And last night, Tucker Carlson started, uh, he's doing a movie about January 6th called The Patriot Purge which is painting the entire insurrection as, in fact, like a way of punishing Trump supporters for uh, supporting Trump rather than an insurrection. What do we do?
4: You know, I saw the preview for that. It was chilling. It's not only revisionist history. But it's also filled with these violent images that seem to be encouraging armed rebellion against the government. Uh, it is just so breathtakingly irresponsible and conducive to violence, you know, in terms of what can be done about it. You know, we're at a very tenuous point in the history of our democracy, where in addition to, you know, these singularly destructive voices like Tucker Carlson, who are holding up uh, you know, Viktor Orban in Hungary, want wannabe be dictators, the model we should follow. Um, You have people running around the country still pushing the big lie to strip independent elections officials of their duties and give them over to Trump acolytes who will overturn the next election if they lose it. It's a a pretty frightening moment right now.
1: And you write about this in your book.
4: I do. I I really, the the book Midnight in Washington is designed to sound the alarm uh, about the fact that our democracy is not self-effectuating. It's a great risk right now uh and uh, i wanted to tell the story of how that happened uh there's been a lot written about what happened in the trump white house but not much written about what happened in congress and without all of the enablers uh, in the us congress trump would not have been able to tear down any of these democratic guardrails how does that happen that that good people that i work with come to surrender everything they believed in their, their ideology their morality in the service of this flawed man.
1: This is a question I often have, like, that I ask myself that's sort of philosophical. Are they pretending to be crazy in order to, like, fend off a primary challenge? Like, what's happening with Governor Abbott, or are they genuinely crazy like MTG?
4: No, they're not. Uh, you know, I think the MTGs are you know, legitimately nuts. But most of the Republican conference that's pushing the big lie understands it's a big lie. They're not stupid. They know exactly what they're doing. And it is just a, a craven capitulation uh, to Donald Trump because they fear a primary, because they want to advance within the party. Uh, You know, you had, you know, figures of courage like Liz Cheney say, I'm not going to do that. That's destructive for our democracy. But for every one of Liz Cheney, there are five, like Elise Stefanik, willing to say, well, you know, if you're not willing to push the big lie, I volunteer. You know, nothing's more important to me than my ambition. And uh, if it means tearing down one of the pillars of our democracy... The, the pillar that says that we allow elections to determine who should govern then then sign me up sadly that's where most of the republicans are right now and it's astonishing how quickly Donald Trump was able to remake one of america's great two parties uh, in in this case into an autocratic cult of his personality.
1: So one of the things that Masha Getson told me, which I, has really stuck with me, and obviously Russia is a good example, though um, we've had people on here who've said that Russia was never a democracy, but still Russia has is not a place where we would like America to never get. They said that narrative is the only way to fight fascism. You have an opportunity with January 6th to have hearings and narrative. Where are you with that?
4: Well, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the, the antidote to this effort to re, you know, rewrite history and to you know push out lies that undermine our democracy is the relentless pursuit of the truth. Uh, and I think we're making great progress. Um, we are interviewing and posting people almost every day. Uh, people are cooperating. We're getting documents from different agencies. Uh, Not everyone is cooperating, certainly, and those that are fighting us uh, are very public and we're holding them in criminal contempt like Steve Batten. But we're proceeding with with great speed and diligence and with a uniformity of purpose. We want to get out the truth. Uh, We're going to have more public hearings. And we aim to write a definitive report about this dark chapter of our history.
1: Just from a personal standpoint, I think public hearings are going to be more effective than I don't think those reports. I mean, I wrote something on one of the Senate reports and it is really, they just come and go. So, you know, the people don't, it's like the culture just is not, <laughs> is no longer book-based.
4: Yeah, no, I hear you. And and I think the public hearings are going to be extraordinarily important. But we've done in many investigations like we did in the Ukraine investigation. That was, we begin with private depositions and interviews, and then we hold public hearings. And, and I think that's what we'll be doing here.
1: And then the other thing I wanted to ask you about with Steve Bannon is, so we talked about, that the last time someone was held in contempt of Congress was like in, in you know, was a guy who fought with the postmaster general and, you know, you when know, he was held in the Willard Hotel. I mean, Congress really has the power to hold Steve Bannon in contempt. Can you talk about that?
4: Yes. I mean, there are several different routes we could take. I think the most powerful is the one we have pursued first, which is holding him in criminal contempt. So when he failed to appear uh, without good cause, uh, we voted the report out of committee to hold him in criminal contempt. We passed it on the House floor. The Speaker sent it over to the Justice Department to be prosecuted. And the statute says they have a duty to present it to the grand jury. Now, as you say, they don't always follow that duty. But here I think there's good reason to believe they will. The Justice Department has made available to committees on Congress, top-ranking former Justice Department, officials without any assertion of privilege. They're not asserting asserting privileges uh, with respect to thousands of documents we're seeking uh, that were created uh, predominantly during the prior administration. And I think that Merrick Garland understands the need to reinstate the rule of law, that no one gets special treatment, that no one's above the law. Uh, There are other alternatives. And I think what you may be referring to is the process of inherent contempt we don't even need to refer to something to the Justice Department, but that's not a perfect remedy either. Because, you know, for for one thing, we don't have a jail anymore uh, to right. hold someone. <laughs> uh, and right. even if we did, uh, even if we did, you know, they would they would file a habeas corpus petition, and we would have to be litigating in the court anyway. But I think the fact that uh, we're we're seeking prosecution of Bannon has already had a salutary impact on other witnesses uh, in in getting their attention and making sure they understand. There are real consequences if they
1: refuse. Right. and I mean, Steve Bannon has been to jail before. Like he does know what to pack. <laughs> <You know. laughs> I have to make that joke one more time. Well, it was, yeah, you know, I yeah.
4: have to, a- apropos of that, point on something that to me just sums up how this uh, today's GOP has become a cult. Uh, man runs for president on a platform of building a wall that he says Mexico is going to pay for. <laughs> it's an absurd idea to begin with. He becomes president, of course. He doesn't build a wall because Mexico is not, not going to pay for it, um, and then his buddies, including Mr. Bannon, um, raise money from his own supporters to purportedly build a wall, steal it, and then he pardons them for stealing from his own people. It's the most consummate den of thieves and grifters imaginable.
2: <laughs> that, that that's that is a really good uh, like a good focus narrative.
1: So. So let's talk. This morning, Morning Joe had a uh, big break. That Biden has negotiated a deal. It's coming. You know, this is all done. We're gonna have Bill back better. Then, about a minute later, Jake Sherman, who does punchball. Retweets Brendan Buck, who used to work for uh, Paul Ryan. It's not even believable spin. You'd have to not be following Congress to believe that there's really a deal. What's going on?
4: Well, the short answer is I don't know whether we have a deal yet. Uh, You know, I think we've been narrowing in on an agreement. Whether we've got there yet or not, I I really don't know. The president is going to be meeting with us. Uh, I think we'll get a good sense then. Um, but I, I do have confidence that at the end of the day, and I don't know if it's today, but at the end of the day, we're going to get this done. Uh, and the combination of the human infrastructure, Build Back Better bill, the physical infrastructure bill, and the rescue plan are going to be combined. The biggest investment we've made in the American people, uh, at least since the Great Society, if not since the New Deal.
1: No, I, I mean, I agree. But it is interesting to watch this sort of, I mean, there's a lot of machinations going on and it's clear that it's not, you know, but there is a certain amount of like, it strikes me that there's a certain amount of pundit hostility towards the deal.
4: Yes. Well, I've been astonished actually listening to the coverage of it, um, which, uh, you know, has been so focused on, you know, what's the, what's the number that they can assign to it, um, without really talking about what's in it and, and the, the impact it'll have on the country. Uh, you know, the, I think the, Punditry is much more interested in sort of inside the beltway fighting than they are in what sweeping changes we're going to make for the country.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Again, I feel like we're up against this Democratic messaging problem. Like, Democrats are doing good things now. They need to be sure that Republicans don't take credit for it.
4: Well, I I think you're you're right. I mean, we set expectations so high that even when we get this massive uh, investment done, we risk disappointing people that there's not even more in it. Right. Um, you know, one of my colleagues uh, summed it up so well when he asked me the other day, you know, what if I told you at the beginning of the year that we were going to pass a rescue plan that would lift half the kids in the country out of poverty? And we we're going to pass a huge infrastructure bill to make long overdue investments in infrastructure, that we we're going to pass a, a Build Back Better bill that was going to do all these things. What if I told you we we're going to get that all done in the first year? What would you say?" And I, I said, I would think that would be incredible. That would be an amazing record of achievement. Uh, and we're going to do all that. Uh, but, uh, but I think we've raised expectations so high that uh, for some, that may not be enough.
1: I also think there's fundamental Democratic messaging, pro- you know, that Demo- I mean, Republicans are so committed to messaging. That's all they do.
4: Yes. And, and you know, of course, they've got uh, Fox and Newsmax and OAN, which are essentially state-run TV for the Republican Party. And it's easy to harmonize your message when you've got this huge megaphone that uh, that does nothing but try to allow their followers to live in an alternate world.
1: So let's talk about a non-alternate world, which is California.
2: <laughs> I, I, let's not get carried away with that, Mike.
1: <laughs> Listen, ha- most of my family lives in California now. You fifth largest economy, practically its own country. And you guys are feeling the brunt of climate change before the rest of us in certain ways. What is going on in California?
4: Well, I mean, you're absolutely right. We've had the hottest summer, I think ever. We've had the driest temperatures uh, in a hundred years. Our water supply is literally drying up. Our state is often on fire and we are really feeling the effects of climate change. Uh, now we're trying to move aggressively, As a state, to dealing with this, Uh, but you know we we can't wall ourselves off from the climate impacts of other states and other countries, and so it's a really really scary situation in California and really around the globe. I'm hopeful that uh, we're going to have a major and I think unprecedented investment in the Build Back Better bill and attacking the problem of climate, and in my little lane and the intelligence. Committee, uh, we put a priority on making sure that the intelligence community is aware of the national security impacts of climate change. And you may have seen recently the community put out, uh, I, I think, a pathbreaking report of the national security dimensions to this problem. Uh, we're trying to uh, create an infrastructure within the intelligence community so that that work continues. Uh, but of course, that's just one little piece. The biggest piece is we need to invest in alternate technologies, alternate energy sources, uh, and wean the nation off of fossil fuels.
1: So it's fire season in California, which <laughs> is, is the new thing. Talk to me about the Fire Guard.
4: Fire Guard is a program uh, also that has its origins uh, in the uh, intelligence community and defense community, where we have these, these satellite capabilities of identifying when an incipient blaze begins. Uh, so that uh, we can tip and cue and alert firefighters to the presence of a new fire in a very specific location, and they can go put it out before it spreads. Now, this this technology wasn't developed for the purpose of firefighting, but it's extremely useful uh, and powerful. And it has been a struggle, I have to say, to continue to get the uh, Defense Department to do this because they don't view it as part of their job description. Uh, but we I think we need to take a broader view of national security. Uh, you know, if people are dying from wildfires, then uh, this is a security imperative. So we have been continuing this program sort of one year at a time, and I'm, I'm looking to give it long-term stability.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is like national service is my raison d'etre, not to be too pretentious, but like I do, obs- I'm sort of obsessed with the idea of American teenagers being able to do a year of national service, and this idea of a climate corp, I don't know if it's in the final bill or not, but w- is very cool. Do you see a world where that, where that's an option for teenagers? I
4: think it's a great idea. I love the idea, and I love the, the, the idea of your service. And I think Teach for America has been brilliant, and uh, a and climate corp, I think, would similarly be a wonderful thing that young people would be excited about participating in. Um, you know, what I'm hearing is that it's not part of the Build Back Better bill. I wish it were, um, but it, it, that's the kind of thing that I think could pass as a standalone measure uh, and and uh, and would just have so much uh, benefit to the planet and to young people.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's right. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you'll come back.
4: I would love to come back. Great to talk with you. I love that cameo by your dog in the background. <laughs> <laughs>
2: What's crazier than QAnon, more outlandish than Pizzagate, and scarier than a Mexican getaway with Ted Cruz? The answer is what the American right wing has planned next. Be one of the first to listen to Fever Dreams, the new podcasts from the Daily Beast tracking the conspiracy slingers, orange acolytes, and straight-up grifters pushing to retake power. Every Wednesday, hosts Swin Subisang and Will Summer checking in on the movement of the radical right. Head to the dailybeast.com slash podcasts or your favorite podcast player to catch the first episode and get subscribed. That's Fever Dreams, which you can subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. Molly Jug Fast.
1: Jesse Cannon.
2: What's going on today?
1: Lots of fuckery.
2: I hear a little bowtied twerp is at it again.
1: He's got to know that what he's doing is destroying the country, right? He's pretty smart.
2: The wager we have to do at this point is it's stupid to not think that they're trying to stoke a civil war or that stupid national divorce thing.
1: Yeah. Tucker Carlson, he calls it the Patriot purge As he (laughs) describes, The armed insurrection, I mean the fuckery motherfucking fuckery.
2: Can I tell you what I hate about this? He's making a movie that's going to disparage the greatest movie franchise's name in the history of movies, The Purge. Oh, yeah, that's
1: clearly the biggest problem there. <laughs> You've really nailed it. Thank you.
2: <laughs> listen, listen, I have my priorities straight. Don't disparage the purge.
1: So democracy—that's kind of that kind of sucks too. We're all gonna <laughs> die.
2: Don't you find it really insane that Fox News mega Leviathan is going along with this?
1: I don't because I think they'll just go along with anything that. T- I mean, Tucker Carlson basically runs the network now, right? I mean, he's the boss. He's Lachlan Murdoch's boss, and Lachlan Murdoch doesn't care. And Rupert is nine hundred years old, and so together, <laughs> Tucker Carlson just undermines democracy. And maybe he's psyched. Maybe he owns, you know, some company that's going to do very well in a American Civil War. But for those of us who are normal and sane, this whole thing is just a complete disaster.
2: Are you saying he's gambling on that we're all going to eat frozen fish sticks after the revolution? He's he's
1: obviously doing this for the fish sticks. I mean, that's the only (laughs) thing that makes sense. No, I mean, the whole thing is a complete and utter total nightmare. I mean, I don't know if you saw this polling yesterday, but a large percentage of the American people believe that, I mean, it's not a large percentage, it's about a third. A third of the American people don't really want democracy anymore. And, uh, you know, that doesn't end well, you know, that ends with bad stuff. And as you and I talk about all the time, like it's very scary and it's being made every day worse by one Tucker Carlson. Agreed. Jesse, who is your fuck that guy?
2: Well, I'm going to pick up where I left off on the last episode and go in on one alien looking weirdo. Mark Zuckerberg. On the last episode, we were talking about that. So much of the analysis was no, no. Facebook is filled with good people. They're trying their hardest.
1: Yeah. No one liked that.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, anybody with a half a brain could see that that wasn't what was going on. But for some reason, people love carrying water for them. But now what we see is there's this new account of a policy that they were going to implement at Facebook where they were going to do more Spanish voter outreach. And Mark Zuckerberg decided that, no, they shouldn't do that. That might be partisan. So now when we've debated, are they just stupid? Are they just doing it for growth? We have to say they're. we're more concerned with growth in the country, and they are absolute fucking idiots. This shows that they're not up for the job that they have and that they really, really, really need regulation. And they really, really, really need to be less powerful.
1: Oh, yeah the good news is they need to be, they are expanding into the metaverse too. Oh yes. So they can ruin the real world and the fake world.
2: (laughs) Can't wait. It's even better than space force.
1: Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) On that note, we'll wrap this episode of the new abnormal from the daily beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking to smart folks from the daily beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you again on the next episode.